John chapter 12, verses 12 through 19. On the next day, the large crowd who had come to the feast, when they heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem, took the branches of the palm trees and went out to meet him and began to shout, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. Jesus, finding a young donkey, sat on it. As it is written, Fear not, daughter of Zion. Behold, your king is coming, seated on a donkey's colt. These things his disciples did not understand at at the first. But when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered the things that were written of him and that they had done these things to him. So the people who were with him when he called Lazarus out of the tomb raised uh, out of the tomb and raised him from the dead continued to testify about him. For this reason also the people went and met him because they heard that he had performed this sign. So the Pharisees said to one another, "You see that you are not doing any good. Look, The whole world has gone after him. This is God's holy, inerrant, authoritative word. Let's pray. Lord God Almighty, we come before you and we ask for your help. Give us understanding into your word. May your spirit hover over this congregation even as your spirit hovered at the beginning of creation and worked through your word to bring forth life. We pray that you would do that this morning. And also for those who do have life, that your spirit might illuminate, might correct, might bring conviction, might bring hope. Do that word work that you promised to do. In Jesus' name, amen. Perhaps you remember the story of Alexander the Great and his great war horse. The story goes something like this. It's somewhat legendary, so there may be some uh, apocryphal notes to it. But basically, uh, he was a young man or boy, age 12 at the time. and, And his father, Philip of Macedon, was looking for a war horse to purchase. Well, there was one dealer of horses who was trying to sell this particular horse to Philip of Macedon, but he just was not having it because this horse would easily get spooked. Even though this horse was tremendously strong and would make a great horse to ride into battle, it just was seemingly untamable. And young Alexander watched and observed this horse and informed his father, Philip, that he wanted that horse for himself. His father somewhat chuckled and said, Son, if you can ride it, you can have it. What Alexander had observed about the horse was that the horse would get spooked when it saw its own shadow. And so Alexander wisely faced the horse towards the sun so that it did not see its own shadow, mounted the horse and began to ride the horse. And this horse became famous, legendary. He named his horse Bucephalus. It was Alexander's great war horse that he rode into battles and conquered the world with it. Well, we're going to see a king ride not on a war horse this morning, but on a meek and lowly donkey. It's a familiar passage in the Gospels. In fact, it's, it's, it's one of the few uh, sections in the life of Christ that is recorded in all four Gospels. All four of the Gospels record what is commonly called the triumphal 
entry of Jesus. An event that is commonly celebrated on what we call Palm Sunday. And it this time frame wise, this was roughly about a week before the death of Jesus. This is probably did indeed happen on Sunday. It was just the night before that we saw in John chapter twelve, where we where Mary of Bethany is anointing Jesus' head and his feet with this precious oil, and there's this interchange between Judas and, and, and objecting to what Mary had done here, and, and it highlighted Mary's uh, devotion to Jesus, but really Mary's anointing of Jesus for his burial and anointing him in a very real sense as as king. And this is this is a theme that we see here in the heart of the Gospel of John that Jesus is a king like no other. His his anointing is not the normal anointing of the king of a king. His uh, his entry, as we're going to see, is not a typical entry of a king conquering on a war horse. His throne is not a typical throne, laced with gold, but is a Roman cross. And his castle is not a typical castle, it's a tomb. And this is the glory and exaltation of Jesus. So let's, let's pick up the account in verse 12. And the next day, the large crowd who had come to the feast when they heard Jesus was coming to Jerusalem took the palm branches and went out to meet him. So this is the next day. This is after the anointing from Mary of Bethany. And notice there's a description of who is there with these palm branches. It's it's those who had come to the feast. So these are the pilgrims. Remember, this is the Passover feast that's here. It's one of the three pilgrimage feasts in ancient Israel. And, and by the way, this is a, a good indication that you know, something that we commonly, uh, that preachers commonly preach on is the fickleness of the crowds. On the one hand, the crowd is saying, you know, uh, welcoming Jesus, you know, and then not long from now, the same crowd, preachers say, uh, they're chanting, crucify him. It's more than likely not the same crowd. The, the crowd that chants, crucify him later on, were, were more than likely those who were already in Jerusalem, whereas the, the, the crowd here, These are the pilgrims. These are those who probably traveled maybe even with Jesus on their way to Jerusalem. And so, notice what they're doing here in verse 13. They're taking palm branches and going out to meet Him. Now, perhaps I know maybe you grew up in a church tradition that on Palm Sunday you received the palm branch. I remember growing up in church tradition that I grew up in, we received a palm branch and um, I can't remember if my brother and I whipped each other with it. I, probably I whipped my younger sisters with it. Um, but we look at that and we see, well, okay, that's interesting, right? <laughs> you know, uh, the, these palm branches probably came from uh, date palms. In fact, I think we have a picture of, a, of a, a palm tree and it would have been easy to snap these branches off and, and by the way um, we mentioned when we were looking at the Feast of Tabernacles, the Feast of Booths where they would make these makeshift little shelters out of branches uh, during that holiday they also did the same thing as well during the Passover feast because I think there was hundreds of thousands of people coming into Jerusalem and so there's only there's a limited amount of space so they would make these little huts with these palm branches. So it would have been easy to find palm branches lying around and and they're bringing them and they're laying them before Jesus as he is is as we're going to see riding on a donkey. But it still doesn't answer the question what's the point of the palm branches, right? Well, Craig Keener in his Bible background commentary says palm branches have been one of the nationalistic symbols of Judea since the days of the Maccabees and were consistently used to celebrate military victories and probably stirred some political messianic hopes amongst the people. 
And so the palm branches were tremendously significant as a kind of nationalistic symbol. It it was kind of like the waving of the Israeli flag. Uh, and, and, And so what's clear here is this crowd views Jesus as a potential national hero, as one who would lead Israel to victory and to finally strip off the the yoke of Roman bondage. And again, keep in mind historically what's going on here. Jerusalem would have been filled with Roman soldiers. It was occupied territory. It was under the thumb of the Roman Empire. And if you are a faithful Jew with all this, this history as God's people... You don't like these pagan Gentiles telling you what to do. You don't like their very presence in your midst. And Jesus, Jesus, you remember, He is often viewed by the people of His day as that hope of stripping off Roman Authority. In fact, going back to the poem, I think we have another slide there. Uh, a coin, a, a Jewish coin that has a palm branch on it. Now, this was several years after Christ, but again, it, it highlights this being a picture of a national symbol. And this isn't the first time that the people are viewing Jesus as a political freedom fighter. Remember it was in chapter 6 after Jesus had fed 5,000 men, maybe upwards of 20,000 people that, that, that they are planning to make Him, they want to make Him their King. They want to carry Him on their shoulders and bring Him into Jerusalem. And you remember what Jesus does? He leaves. He gets away from them. He knows what they're trying to do. I mean, because think about this. I mean, if you have the ability to feed, you know, thousands of people, I mean, what would that do for an army, right? You can feed an entire army. Or what would that do if there was a sieging of a city and there's people surrounding the city and you're behind city walls and they're trying to starve you out, uh, you know, and not letting any food or any water go in those city walls. But hey, here's some food, here's some water. You could last forever behind those city walls. And then not only that, Jesus has just done this miracle in a suburb of Jerusalem where his best friend Lazarus is dead and he brings him back from the dead. And you don't think those pilgrimers who are, who are laying down these palm branches heard about this Jesus who raises people from the dead? I mean, could you imagine that? A soldier goes down, gets hit by an arrow. Here, he's back up. Somebody gets hurt over here. Oh, he, we, you know, Jesus can be the medic as well as the king. And so this was their hope. This was their thinking. And so we might obviously ask the question, well, in this instance, Jesus doesn't run away, does he? But he does do something unique. He understands the crowd isn't quite understanding him. And, and one more thing about the crowd. Notice what they're chanting here in verse, the second part of verse 13. They began to shout, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. So this is a, a citation from Psalm 118. This is one of what's called the Hallel Psalms. It's Psalm 113 through 118. The, the Israelites, the Jewish people, would often sing on their ways to the feast. So as they were traveling, they would chant these, these different psalms. And so they were very familiar with Psalm 118, which is clearly a psalm speaking of the future king of Israel. And and they they cite this part of the psalm, Hosanna, which means God save us. Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. So this is very clear. They are on board with Jesus being their king. 
the kind of king that they wanted. The kind of king that would do what they wanted. And there's, of course, an irony as well as they chant Hosanna, which definitely at this point in time, the usage of the word Hosanna was more of an exclamation, but it's very clear when you go back to that Psalm 118, it was a prayer, God save us. But saving them in their kind of way, namely a political savior, a political liberator. And so what does Jesus do here? Verse 14. Jesus, finding a young donkey, sat on it. As it is written, Fear not, daughter of Zion. Behold, your king is coming, seated on a donkey's colt. So notice verse 14, Jesus is very intentional here. The text says he finding a young donkey. We learn from other Gospels that the disciples were involved in finding this donkey. And John also records, as it is written, which is a catchphrase, as it is in the Scriptures, the writings. And John quotes from Zechariah chapter 9, in verse 9, where it says, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout in triumph, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. He is just and endowed with salvation, humble and mounted on a donkey, even on a colt, the foil of a donkey. And so this is a, a citation here from Zechariah, which was a prophecy about the future king, the future Messiah who would come on a donkey. So Jesus is very clearly, intentionally fulfilling this prophecy. But again, much like the palm branches, we have to say, what's up with the donkey, right? What's the significance of it? Well, in the ancient world, kings and diplomats and government officials would sometimes come and ride on a donkey. But, when they would come on a donkey, it was coming not for war, like on a war horse. It was coming as an overture of peace. As a gesture, I come to negotiate. As a gesture of saying, I come to bring peace, not a sword. I come differently, actually, than the crowd had thought Jesus might come or had thought their king would come. They wanted a king on a war horse. They wanted a king that would strip off the yoke of Roman authority. But that's not the kind of king Jesus was coming as. Again, Keener says, although Jesus is welcomed as a king or conqueror, he rides on a donkey. One expected military heroes to ride horses or be drawn in chariots. Jesus instead comes as a meek, non-military official would, following Zechariah chapter 9 and verse 9. Most ancient Mediterranean hearers deemed honorable ruler who was peaceful and kind to his enemies. There's also some other parts of Zechariah in this prophecy that are quite interesting. If you turn to Zechariah chapter 9 and verse 9, I read verse 9 already, this prophecy about the king. Behold, your king is coming. He is just and endowed with salvation, humble and mounted on a donkey, even a colt, the foil of a donkey. But then verse 10 highlights this peaceful entry. Verse 10, I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim and the horse from Jerusalem and the bow of war will be cut off and he will speak peace to the nations. So, 
Jesus intentionally fulfilling Zechariah chapter 9. It's a prophecy not only about the king coming on a donkey, but a king who's going to... He's cutting off war. He's coming in peace. And peace... Peace here to the nations. To the ethnoi. To the goyim. To the Gentiles. Which the closest Gentiles at this point to the Jewish people were those dirty Romans who were in their city. (laughs) This was not the kind of king that they wanted. This was not the kind of king that they anticipated. And not only that, Zechariah goes on and says, And his dominion will be from sea to sea, from the river to the ends of the earth. As for you also, because the blood of my covenant with you, I have set your prisoners free from the waterless pit. So this king would come, and his kingdom would be vast. It would go from sea to sea. And not only that, it was a kingdom that he entered into with blood covenant. All of this we see fulfilled in the Lord Jesus Christ and the kingdom that He brought in in His first coming. David Barron writes, speaking of Zechariah chapter 9, the prophecy was intended to introduce in contrast to earthly warfare and kingly triumph another kingdom of which the just king would be the prince of peace who was meek and lowly in his advent who would speak peace to the heathen and whose sway would extend to the earth's utmost bounds. If there was ever a true picture of Messiah king and his kingdom it, it is this and if ever Israel was to have a Messiah or or, a, or the world a Savior, he, w- he must be such as is described in this prophecy, not merely in letter, but in the spirit of it. So this is Jesus coming on a donkey. Coming with a public statement that He's coming in peace. Not only to Israel, but even to the Gentiles. Verse 16, John comments, These things the disciples did not understand at first. But when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things were written of Him and that they had done these things to Him. So, John tells us that the disciples didn't get it when it was taking place. They didn't quite understand it But they did eventually have a eureka moment, an aha. But it would happen later on. Notice John says, when Jesus was glorified. What do they mean by that? When was Jesus glorified? What was His glory? Well, you have to follow the theme of the Gospel of John to understand. If you just drop your eyes down to verse 27 through 32. Now my soul, Jesus says, has become troubled. And what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. But for this purpose I came to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Then a voice came out of heaven. I have both glorified it and will glorify it again. So what is Jesus talking about? When Jesus says, Father, save me from this hour. And then he says, I've come for this hour. What is the hour? The hour is the hour of His crucifixion. And when God says, I I have glorified it and I will glorify it, what is His glory? The glory is His cross. Again, I told you, this is a different kind of king. I mean, would you typically say, well, my greatest hour was when I was publicly executed. When I was hung, stark naked, publicly, and humiliated before humanity to die a slow, painful, agonizing death. And yet this is exactly how the Gospel of John portrays Jesus' execution, His crucifixion. It's His glory. Even if you look in the following verses... In verse 32, Jesus says, And I, if I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all men to Myself. 
lifted up, which this is a word that carries double meaning, both in English and in Greek, to be, to be lifted up. Clearly he meant that in a very literalistic kind of way, he was suspended between heaven and earth on a Roman cross. But also lifted up carries the idea of exaltation, lifted up, glorified, honor, in a position of prominence. His position of prominence His throne, again, was a Roman bloody cross. I told you, he's a different kind of king. And so, back to the disciples, John's saying, the disciples didn't get it until after his glorification. Then they had this aha moment. Indeed, the cross was his glory. Indeed, he came meek and mild on a donkey because his kingdom was a different kind of kingdom. They remembered these things as they compared the Scriptures with what Jesus said about Himself, about what Jesus did, about the things that happened to Him. And they had Bibles in hand and said, Aha! Now we get it. Verse 17. So the people who were with Him when He called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised Him from the dead continued to testify about Him. For this reason also the people went and met him because they had heard he had performed this sign. So the people who were there in Bethany, the suburb of Jerusalem, just two miles outside of Jerusalem where Jesus is right now, they, kept, they couldn't stop talking about it. And you would too. If you were at a funeral and the dude came back to life, you wouldn't stop talking about it, right? <laughs> that's, that's worth conversation. You know, around the coffee table. That's where it's conversation with friends and family waiting in the market. You're going to tell people, you'll never believe what I saw the other day. And so because of this, more and more people, Jesus is becoming more and more of a kind of celebrity here. More and more people are interested in Jesus, want to find out more about Him, are curious. Verse 19. So the Pharisees said to one another, you see that you are not doing any good. Now they're saying this to one another, so they're blaming each other, you know. There's, there's, there's dissension on the team. You idiots, what are you doing? Look at everybody following Jesus. And then notice this, again, ironic statement in verse 19. The whole world has gone after Him. Now, obviously, from their vantage point, they're speaking in hyperbole, right? The whole world, everybody's following Jesus. The whole world has gone after Jesus. But they're speaking better than they know, right? Because remember, remember the Zechariah 9 passage? He's coming, being, bringing peace to the goyim, to the nations. Not only that, notice the very next verse that John records in verse 20. Now there were some Greeks among those who were going up to worship at the feast, and they came to Philip from Bethsaida of Galilee and began to ask him, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. And so similar to Caiaphas that we saw earlier in the chapter who said, you know, this man must die and not only for this nation only, but for the scattered children of God speaking far better than he knew. Here where they say the whole world has gone after him, they're speaking far better than they know. Indeed, this Jesus is about to go global. He's about to send out His apostles to the uttermost ends of the world and this kingdom will be from sea to sea. But it's a different kind of king with a different kind of kingdom. A different kind of king with a different kind of kingdom. And if you're taking notes, this is what I want you to take home with you. Two important applications in light of the reality of Jesus being a different kind of king with a different kind of kingdom. Number one, make sure your posture is the same as Jesus' posture. Make sure your posture is the same as Jesus' posture. 
I think a lot of us are riding around on war horses. And we're ready to pounce upon every thought, every belief, every person who does not believe the same way that we do. And we want to wage war. We live in a world, I don't have to tell you this, that is increasingly budding Christianity out of any conversation at the table. More and more, Christianity is maligned and ostracized. And there is a temptation to think we're at war. And there's a sense, yes, I get it. There is a sense in which we are at war. It's a war of ideas. It's a a war in which we need to engage unbelieving thought with the truth of Christianity and to fight that battle. But what I want to say is our posture. What is our posture? Jesus is coming in not on a war horse, but on a donkey. Now, have you ever seen somebody riding a donkey? I mean, usually they're so small, you have to kind of like keep your legs up in the air or your feet will be dragging. He's coming on a donkey because He's offering peace. He's offering terms of peace with the world. That if you repent and believe in Jesus, that you can be reconciled to Almighty God. Thomas Kaminsky talking about the Zechariah 9 passage says, the donkey stands out as a deliberate rejection of the symbol of arrogant trust in human might, expressing subservience to the sovereignty of God. Jerusalem's king is a humble man yet victorious. And so it has always been that the church does not effectively spread the gospel by sword or by arrogance, but by mirroring the humble spirit of its King and Savior. I mean, think, this Jesus who had all authority in heaven and earth, who says on one occasion, Peter, don't you think that I could call down twelve legions of angels if I wanted to? But he doesn't. He goes the way of the cross. He goes the way of humility. Jonathan Edwards, in his sermon, Altogether Lovely, says his condescension is great enough to become their friend, to become their companion, to unite their souls to him in a spiritual marriage. Yea, it is great enough to abase himself, yet lower for them, even to expose himself to shame and spitting. Yea, to yield up himself in an ignominious death for them. Tremendous posture of humility and gentleness, which is self-control over His own power. And that's the posture that we should have. One of humility and gentleness. Do you know, as far as I can tell, there's only one time that Jesus tells us about His heart. Only one time in all the Scriptures where Jesus says, this is what my heart is like. It's in Matthew chapter 11, verse 27, where He says, Come to Me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take My yoke upon you and uh, and learn from Me, for I am what? Gentle and humble of heart. I am gentle and humble of heart. That's how Jesus describes His heart. And Christians who follow the Jesus who came on a donkey with a humble and lowly heart should imitate their Master. Isn't it an amazing thing? When you look at the disciples, who's on the list of those disciples? I mean, politically speaking in ancient Israel, you had Simon the Zealot. The Zealots had all the same beliefs as the Pharisees, 
Except they also believed that to give money to the Roman government was blasphemous. And they also believed in the importance of using the sword to communicate with the Roman government. And so they would periodically murder Roman soldiers, periodically assassinate government officials, Simon the Zealot. And then you also had Matthew the tax collector, (laughs) the extreme other end of the spectrum where he was collecting taxes from his fellow Jews to give to the Roman government. I mean, a compromiser if there was ever a compromiser. And yet, wonder of wonders, both of these repentant, uh, uh, you know, from his being a zealot and repentant from being a tax collector, unite themselves under the banner of Jesus and follow Him as He travels on this donkey. Understanding that their mission and their purpose transcended some of their backgrounds and beliefs. Now they were united in the same posture as Jesus. Turn to Titus chapter 3. This posture. Titus chapter 3 beginning in verse 1. Paul is writing to Titus and through Titus to the churches in Crete. He says, Remind them to be subjected to rulers, to authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good deed, to malign no one, to be peaceable, Gentle, showing every consideration for all men. That's the posture. Peaceable, gentle, good deeds. Submissive to governing authorities. And then notice this, verse 3. For we also once were foolish ourselves disobedient, deceived, enslaved to various lusts and pleasures, spending our life in malice and envy, hateful and hating one another. But when the kindness of God our Savior and His love for mankind appeared, He saved us not on the basis of deeds which we have done in righteousness, but according to His mercy by the washing of regeneration and renewing of the Holy Spirit. You see what he's saying there? Be be peaceable, be gentle. Why? Because you used to be just like these schmucks. You were just like them. And where would you be apart from the grace of God? Friends, unbelievers act like unbelievers. You know why? This is radical. Because they're unbelievers. (laughs) Unbelievers believe things that unbelievers believe. You know why? Because they're unbelievers. And it's one thing, sometimes, you know, we have to correct somebody who claims to be a Christian, but who's living or believing like an unbeliever. But what I'm saying here is be very careful that we don't mistake the fruit for the root. That at root, an unbeliever's problem is that he's an unbeliever. He needs to repent wholesale and bow his knee to King Jesus. That's the offer of peace. But friend, our posture towards the unbelieving world ought to be one of peace and gentleness. Because that was the posture of the Savior. Our view of Jesus and our view of Christianity ought not to be one of political liberation. Because it's a different kingdom. Did Jesus not say to Pilate when he inquired... You're a king? He said, Yes, but my kingdom is not of this world. It's a different kind of king with a different kind of kingdom. Now, granted, I understand it's painful to watch the destruction of our great republic. 
I get it. And I'm not saying we shouldn't have some involvement where we can to do what we can to try and save the Republic. But ultimately, keep in mind that our posture ought to be one of gentleness and meekness. And secondly, our purpose ought to be one the same as Jesus as well. Or the great mission of the church is not the rescue of the republic. Again, we can be involved, should be involved, where we can, how we can. We can try to keep our governing officials accountable, both in the voting booth, through emails, all that. We, some of you may even, the Lord may call you to run for political office. But nonetheless, make sure, secondly, make sure your purpose is the same as Jesus' purpose. Jesus came back to the passage in Zechariah. He's coming on a donkey. The donkey was suggestive of Him coming with terms of peace. He came on a mission to die for sinners. He came on a mission to be a peace offering on behalf of sinners so that rebels like you and I can be reconciled to the great God in heaven. Zechariah 9.10 I will cut off the chariot and the mounted donkey, even a colt or, uh, um, from Ephraim and the horse from Jerusalem and the bow of war will be cut off and he will speak Peace to the nations. And this all happens through the blood of His covenant. We also see this in in verse 19 of the same passage with the irony of the Pharisees when they say, the whole world has gone after Him. The whole world. The purpose, the mission of God's people here and now is to bring this message of peace. Not peace, everything's okay, I'm okay, you're okay, God's okay with you. No, peace suggests, when there's an offer of peace, it suggests there's a war. But here's a treaty. Here's a terms of peace offering. And humanity is at war with God. They're at war with their Creator, shaking their fist at God the Almighty. And yet Jesus died in this blood of the covenant, this term of peace, so that rebels like you and I could be reconciled to this great God. That's the message of peace. That's the mission to to bring rebels at peace with their great God as they come to Him in faith and repentance, trusting only in Jesus to get to heaven and also repenting them turning from their rebellion and subjecting themselves to Jesus as King. And so it's worth pausing here at this moment. If you're sitting here and you're still at war with God, you're still fighting against God, still going your own way, doing your own thing, I summon you to bow your knee to King Jesus. Turn to Him in repentance and beg Him for forgiveness and trust only in Jesus and what He did on the cross as a term of peace. Because if you don't, you will be at war with Him for all eternity. And that is not a war you will win. Sometimes people mock and scoff the idea of hell eternal burning and even the suggestion I mean how could somebody even burn eternally I mean typically you throw something in the fireplace it's incinerated not long ago I was talking with somebody involved in the military about military technology that can send a ray over a certain area and cause people to feel like their skin is on fire. And it totally immobilizes them. They're not able to do anything. It doesn't kill them, but they feel like they're on fire as long as those rays are pointed towards them. If man can create an instrument like that, what do you think the creator of the universe could do to inflict eternal pain upon those who refuse to bow their knee to King Jesus? 
His Son, His offer of peace. And so this is our mission. To bring the message of peace to the world around us. Richard Phillips, I was a little bit suspicious about my application this week because nobody else seemed to be wanting to apply it in this way. Maybe they haven't lived through 2020. But Richard Phillips in his commentary on John says, as we interact with unbelieving neighbors, including even such flagrant culture war enemies as abortionists, homosexuals, and evolution proponents, we must reach out to them with the same loving desire for their salvation that drove Jesus into Jerusalem to take up the cross. Sometimes I think we have the Son of Thunder Syndrome. You know what the Son of Thunder Syndrome is, right? Remember James and John, the the Sons of Thunder as Jesus called them. They're with Jesus and they're traveling through Samaria and once the Samaritans found out that they were on their way to Jerusalem, they said, no, we're not going to let you have a room in our hotel. And James and John... (laughs) said to Jesus, would you like us to call down fire from heaven upon them? (laughs) You remember Jesus' response? This is Luke chapter 9, verse 55-56. Jesus turned and rebuked them and says, you do not know what kind of spirit you are of. For the Son of Man did not come to destroy men's lives, but to save them. And they went on to another village. Again, please do not misunderstand me. I am not saying that there is not a war. There is a war of ideas. There is a battle of ideas. We should engage. And sometimes that engagement can become heated. I get that. But nonetheless, our posture should be gentleness and humility. Our purpose should be bringing the message of peace. First Corinthians ten, three through five, for though we walk in the flesh, we do not war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but divinely powerful for the destruction of fortresses. For we are destroying every speculation and every lofty thing that raises itself up against the knowledge of God, and we are taking every thought captive in obedience to Christ. So yes, it is a war. It's a war of ideas, but it comes with a message and offer of terms of peace. And so Christian, how are you involved in this great purpose that Jesus has left us with? We're called to make disciples of all the nations. The same nations that... Zechariah prophesied that this king would come offering peace to the nations. How are you relating to your neighbors, your friends, your co-workers? Blind, lost. You need to bring them the message of peace from the Prince of Peace as an ambassador. Do some of you need to Dismount your war horse and begin to humbly crawl behind the Savior on the donkey in a posture of humility towards the world around you. This is the posture and the purpose of us as believers today. Now, It won't always be this way. It is interesting when you read the book of Revelation, you find palm branches in Revelation as well. verse you might have glossed over or overlooked in Revelation chapter 7. 
Verse 9 and 10, it says, After these things I looked and beheld, and behold, a great multitude which no one could count, from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and tongues, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes, and palm branches were in their hands, and they were crying out with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. The palm branches appropriately come out in the future. Because victory will have been finally, totally accomplished. And also, one day Jesus will exchange the donkey. He'll go to the dealership and trade in the donkey for the war horse. Because Revelation 19 verse 11 says, And I saw, John writes, the same one who wrote about Jesus riding into Jerusalem on a donkey, I saw heaven open, and behold, a white horse. And he who sat on it is called faithful and true, and in righteousness he judges and wages war. His eyes are a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems, and he has a name which no one knows except himself, and he is clothed in a robe dipped in blood, and his name is called the Word of God. And the armies which are in heaven, clothed in fine linen, white and clean, were following him also on white horses, war horses. And from his mouth comes a sharp sword so that with it he may strike down the nations and he will rule them with a rod of iron and he treads the winepress of the fierce wrath of God the Almighty. And and on his robe and on his thigh he has a name written King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Friends, one day Palm branches will be out. One day, He will ride on a war horse and His saints will as well. In His first coming, He came to save sinners. In His second coming, He comes to slay sinners. And it's the same mission we have as well. We live between the comings. And our job now is not to slay sinners. It's to save sinners. Let's pray. Lord God Almighty, we thank You for our blessed Lord Jesus. Having the muscles of omnipotence, He humbly comes into Jerusalem on a donkey, ready to ascend His throne, a Roman cross, to bear the sins of sinners as a terms of peace for rebels against Almighty God. And Lord, this is good news that we can bring to the world around us and should bring to the world around us. Oh Lord, help us both to have the posture and the passion of Jesus in whose name we pray. Amen.